I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. You can't take a creative organization, creative endeavor, and tell them they have so many hours to do something or, or so many dollars to do something. You would absolutely thwart the creative spirit. So our business plan was there was no plan. In this episode, I speak with Sidney Felsen, co-founder of the renowned contemporary print workshop, Gemini G.E.L. In 1966, college friends Sidney Felsen and Stanley Grinstein, with master printer Ken Tyler, opened the artist, workshop, and fine art print publisher Gemini G.E.L. Over the next 50 years, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein, Robert Rauschenberg, Ellsworth Kelly, Frank Stella, and Richard Serra would make some of the most beautiful and ambitious lithographs, screen prints, and mixed media prints at Gemini. Just as today Julie Meritu, Tessa Dean, Anne Hamilton, and David Hammonds are making theirs. Sidney Felsen photographed these artists at work at Gemini, and the Getty Research Institute recently received this archive of photographs as a gift from photographer and longtime friend of Sidney's, Jack Shear, on the occasion of Sidney's 95th birthday. I recently sat down with Sidney to discuss the long and glorious history of Gemini, G-E-L. Thanks so much, Sidney, for joining me on this podcast. Let's start at the beginning, 1966 the year that you and your friend and business partner, Stanley Grinstein, founded the print publishing studio Gemini G.E.L. in Los Angeles on Melrose Avenue. How old were you then? 41. And where, where, what happened before then? What brought you to the decision to start a business as you did at age 41? Well, uh, let's see, to build it up uh, from the beginning, all through my school education, I studied or majored accounting. I went to Fairfax High School in, in USC, you know, in that era of time, there was always a, 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 a elective thing they called it. You could take, either take music or art, and I always took music because I was probably afraid of art. I didn't know anything about it. It was a different world, and so uh, I graduated college, uh, had zero interest in art, and then probably about two years after college. I did start to become interested in art, and uh, it was the the age of the moon and sixpence <laughs> and uh, lust for life. So I decided I'd read about art, so that was my, my introduction. And then uh, there was a gallery on La Siena called Landau Gallery. It was run by Felix Landau, and I started going to exhibitions there, and I decided that I wanted to paint. And not, you know, I didn't think of myself as a professional painter, just paint for fun. And so I took a, some private lessons, and then I, I started a period of tw- at least 25 or maybe 30 years uh, taking classes. Were you an accountant this whole time? Yeah. When I, when I graduated college, I, I worked for a small accounting firm and then a national firm. In order to become a CPA, you have to work two years for another CPA firm, and then you take these tests and all. And so I became a, a CPA, and then I had my own office for several years. And so, say, between 1950 and 1966, my whole means of, of living was uh, working on accounting. But I became more and more 
seriously involved in art uh, as far as time. I, uh, I went to probably Chenard, which became uh, California Institute of the Arts. I went there for probably eight or nine years, maybe three nights a week and, and weekends. I ended up fairly quickly getting interested in ceramics and uh, in wheel throwing, porcelains. And then the next sequence as far as school was Otis. And I went to Otis for probably seven or eight or nine years at nighttime. And uh, my, my teachers at Chenard were Vivek and Otto Heino, H-E-I-N-O. And at uh, Otis, Peter Volkus was teaching. Vivica was this very demonstrative woman. <laughs> and she said, you mustn't go there, you mustn't go there. That man is terrible, he's, he's breaking all the rules. <laughs> that was Volkus she was talking Volkus, about. Volkus, yeah. yeah. And in Peter's class was Kenny Price and Billy L. Bankston, uh, amongst many other ceramists. And, you know, when somebody tells you you mustn't go, you, you've got to go. So we all <laughs> s- sneaked out around, went, to, went there a couple of times just to see what the classes were like. And so, But by the time, time I got to Otis, yeah, Peter had gone to teaching at Cal at Berkeley, and Henry Takamoto was teaching at Otis. So he became my teacher. And so really, you know, like my... My life was very much filled with involvements in art. I, be, you know, I became aware of my my classmates were pals. I friendships with teachers, uh, going to openings. Uh, uh, you know, every Monday night on La Cienega had uh, art walks, and I'd mm-hmm. go to that. I spent a lot of time in the art world, and and so I was I was interested in everything. I never had any idea that uh, that I was a professional artist or I wanted to be one. I, I enjoyed what I was doing. I had a lot of fun and I produced a lot of ceramics. Most of the things by the time I really got into it and realized what I liked was ceramics. And I liked what I was doing. So where was Stanley Grinstein at this time, your partner in the development of Gemini? Well, at, at USC at that time, he needed 124 units to graduate. And Stanley had 175 units and couldn't graduate because he didn't want to have any major. He, <laughs> he just wanted to take what he wanted to take. And so there was a bunch of us in a fraternity, and we left and graduated in June 1950. And Stanley left but didn't graduate. And so his father had a business was material handling, which means forklift trucks or much bigger units than that. And, uh, and then, you know, he met Elise two years after graduation, after my graduation, and they got married. And, and, and they became very interested in, in contemporary art, and they, they started the Contemporary Arts Council at, at LACMA, and mm-hmm. Stanley was the president. They, they were seriously involved in collecting contemporary art. So, so what got you to start Gemini? What was the spark that Okay, did so it? what happened was in my accounting clientele, I had art galleries as clients, and there was one that was importing prints from Europe. And, you know, the usual in those days was Chagall, Moreau, Picasso, uh, Marino, Marini, or Zaoki, and I liked them, and I was buying them. And so I was interested in prints, and incidentally, in all my years in these art schools, I never took printing. (laughs) And so... I was, I, I was sort of fascinated by what was going on 
in, in this whole print world as far as the importing in the United States. And, and I, liked the, the, I liked the object itself. And so, I don't know, just one of these days I, I said, one of those days I said to Stanley, you know, there's these workshops in Europe and uh, uh, it'd be interesting to have one in Los Angeles. We'd get to know the artist and we'd build collections for ourselves. And his words were something like, I don't know anything about it, but if you want to do it, I'll do it with you. And so in order to have a print studio, a print publishing house, you need a printer. <laughs> and so Ken Tyler, he was, he was an artist. He got interested in printing. He went to Tamarind. Tamarind was a June Wayne teaching right? institution on Tamarind Avenue in Hollywood. And June Wayne was the force and the... Financing was done by the Ford Foundation. Right. And it was started in right. 1960. They gave a five-year uh, grant. And so Tyler became the uh, technical director of, of Tamron and then left to start Gemini Limited. Uh, and it was a uh, for-hire workshop. You, you were an artist. You want to make prints. You come to Tyler. You do your work in the studio, and he, he prints it for you and charges you a fee. The thing is that you got to shift your mind. There was no art market. <laughs> I mean, the prices you could buy things for were embarrassing if you think about it compared to today. So uh, the word was out that Ken was trying to get UCLA to take over his studio as a teaching institution, and he was working on it pretty seriously, and it wasn't happening. And so... Every year, the Grinsteins had a Christmas party, and so in 1965, we, in, we invited Tyler to come to the party, and so Stanley and I sat with him and talked with him all night about possibilities. What we wanted was to be a publishing house. In other words, you, you invite artists to come into your studio. You know, it's, it's a collaborative event, so the artist contributes all the art, the artwork itself, and we're the collaborator and we, we have expertise in, say, in our printers. There. And so they work hand in hand. The artist knows what they want to accomplish, but they don't understand the process itself. And so as a publisher, you own the work. You pay all expenses, to everything, travel, living, production, and distribution and warehousing and everything. And the artist provides the art itself, the imagery itself, and then the artist gets a royalty as the work is sold. Was this standard practice, or is this something that you made up? Or No, 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 no. It was standard, but there's a lot of other standards. <laughs> <laughs> My awareness of the whole print publishing world was in Europe, so mm -hmm. we had no business model at that time. But like Titania Grossman at ULAE, was it a similar situation? At the time that Jim and I started, I had no awareness of, of Tanya Grossman's ULAE or Catherine Brown's Crown Point Press. But the OIE was very similar, yeah. and uh, Crown Point Press up in San Francisco. Yeah. Look, there are publishers who do not have a printing facility. They farm it out to somebody like Tyler was in the beginning. It's just a for-hire shop. But we've always, from day one, we wanted to have our own printing studio and at the same time be a publisher. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, so... Tyler accepted it very quickly, and so we went about deciding you know, who to invite. Which artist to invite? Who, yeah. 
Yeah. In the very beginning, we were chasing all the old-timers, uh, Hans Hoffman, Mark Rothko. Joseph Albers? Well, Albers was, was yes, and he, what happened was Albers said yes, and he had been a Tamarind working with Tyler, and so there was a relationship. And so Ken asked Tyler to work with us, and he immediately agreed that he would, would be the one that would, in a sense, open the shop, you might say. Mm-hmm. So that, that happened. And, and Joseph did a series called White Line Squares. Uh, let's see. Well, also in the early days, uh, uh, the Los Angeles County Museum had a retrospective for Man Ray. And, and they asked Stanley and Elise if Man Ray could stay at their house. And so we had a captive audience. So, but seriously, we were too timid <laughs> to ask Man Ray to work with us. We felt like we didn't know. You know, Tyler was experienced, but Stanley and I had no awareness of what it would be like to have a print studio. We, we, we continued our own lives and earning a living, but we'd go there almost every night or on weekends. And so, so anyway, so we didn't ask Man Ray. And then one day he said to us something about he knew we had this shop. He said, how about if I made some prints there? So we said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he did one lithograph on paper, two uh, lithographs. They were screen printed, I think, onto plexiglass. So he did three editions. Mm-hmm. But however, uh, you know, if you want to speak in the terms of in the beginning, in the, in the first four or five years, it was amazing. It was... Albers, then Man Ray, and then Bob Rauschenberg, Frank Stella, Klaus Oldenburg, Jasper Johns, Roy Lichtenstein, Ed Shea, Ken Price. How difficult was it to attract the New York artists to Los Angeles to work? Well, a uh, combination of, I think, the idea of coming to California. Especially uh, in the wintertime. Palm trees, sunshine. Uh, ocean, uh, skiing, uh, and if you looked at the calendar of the of who arrived when, all East Coast artists came out in January and February, for some unknown reason. <laughs> so, Tyler did more of the actual going to talk to the art. I, you know, I I went with him several times, but you'd have to give him credit for being the more the salesperson of the mm-hmm. thing. With the migration of New York artists to Los Angeles, was there any sense of competition among Los Angeles artists? You know, as time went on, you'd have to define what's a Los Angeles artist because in those days, Bruce Nauman lived here when he, when he worked with us, and Via Selmans lived here when, when she worked with us. Ken Price, David Hockney. But most of the artists that worked with us were from outside of Los Angeles. It's a great photograph you took of Frank Stella, Richard Serra, maybe Ken Price, playing basketball. I think this would be 1971. We, we the three of us owners, felt that uh, Richard Serra, Bruce Nauman, and Keith Saunier were the three most interesting of the younger artists in the scene. And we, we invited the three of them, and they all came to work with us. That's a little surprising because Keith Saunier is a light artist, yeah. and that to transfer that kind of interest and that kind of technique and talent into yeah. lithography or into printmaking isn't a natural transition, I shouldn't think. Well, for one thing, he got us into making handmade paper 
with the paper becoming the object itself. I mean, paper, you know, as big as this desk or, or bigger. Hmm. You know, again, it was a different time. And, you know, when we started, prints were 22 by 30 inches. That was the standard. And that was pretty much what printmaking was. But, you know, it didn't take long for this whole era, whether it was Tanya's or Gemini, the two most likely, would reach out and try to, you know, like Bob Rauschenberg in 1967 made what was believed to be uh, the largest hand-printed lithograph. It was called Booster. It was primarily an X-ray of his body. So it was life-size? Well, yeah, it was six feet tall, yeah. yeah. Bob wanted one X-ray plate that would be six feet, and uh, we were quickly told by Eastman Kodak, all plates are one foot. And so the Eastman had a machine in Rochester that had they had six-foot plates. It was the only one in the country, and Bob didn't want to travel, so it was six one-foot plates. <laughs> but you have the reputation for being a kind of artist-print publisher, and you, you go to lengths to follow the interests of the artist beyond what others would do and would tolerate. Yeah. How did you manage all of that into kind of a business plan that would make it work for Gemini? Yeah. Well, we made up our mind in the beginning that amongst the things we wanted to do was like, quotes, ev- everything you could do for an artist including any process they wanted to try, any material they wanted to use. And we did. We did that. We've done it for, you know, we're in our 53rd year now. And I, we've never denied an artist anything they wanted to try. So then what was your business plan? How did you make it work financially <laughs> for you? Well, let's see. Let me go back a step. In, in accounting, one of the things that I was exploring and got into a little bit as far as for a small company, Business management, you know, accounting was really about record keeping for many, many decades. But somewhere in that period, we were talking about the early days of Gemini and just before that, accounting firms started having business management sections. And so when Gemini started, I coined the phrase that uh, you, you have to run this place like a business. And at the same time, you can't run it as a business. You can't take a creative organization, creative endeavor, and tell them they have so many hours to do something or or so many dollars to do something. You would absolutely thwart the creative spirit. So our business plan was there was no plan. (laughs) We wanted to work with the people we wanted to work with to do it. You know, again, Stanley had a, a going business and I had a business. So we had outside income. We weren't wealthy, but we we had funds. I remembered that you had a subscription program yeah. whereby I think someone would pay a certain amount of money and would get a print from each of the series that you printed. Yeah. Do I remember that correctly? And was it successful? Oh, yeah. yeah. What happened was, going back to you know the time difference, like the first project that Frank Stella did, the prints were $75 each. <laughs> and uh, Jasper did black and white numerals that were... 40 inches, I think, by 30 inches, did a series of 10, and they were $350 each. And the next year he did colored numerals, the same size, some of the same plates, and they were $800 each. And so a set of eight colored numerals was $8,000. And uh, uh, Bob Rauschenberg did Booster, again, the largest print ever in that time. It was $1,000, and 
you know, it, it has sold for probably $350,000 for that one print. It was a different time. Yeah. Was one part of the business plan that you chose to limit the edition size? Oh, yeah, going back to the subscription. So what happened was we were an amazing success, and almost everything sold out. The editions were probably 50. And so we created this subscription program. The idea is you buy one of everything we do, and you get a 25% discount. And so what we wanted, what we were trying to do was build collections. We thought it'd be great to have, you know, a dozen or so collections around the, the country or the world of the things that we did. And I would say, if I had to guess, it was two or three years that we started to see what was happening. The, some of these quotes collectors were putting the prints into auction or selling them in the market in some way. It was really totally against the philosophy of what we were trying to create. And so we stopped the subscription program. Oh, how long did it last? I'd say at the most three years. Yeah. How has the market for prints changed over the last 50 years? Because there was a time in the 60s and 70s when it seemed to be just thriving. Every artist wanted to make a print. Every collector wanted to collect a print. Is that still the case? In a way, it's hard to compare. But like I say, let's go back to 1966 when we started the quantity of, of the artists, the quantity of collectors, quantity of museums, the quantity of galleries. I mean, it was so tiny compared to what it's become. The print market is tremendously active. But I'd say, well, you know, some of the differences between then and now, in those days, you either bought a print from a publisher or from a, an art gallery. The, you know, these days, between the art fairs uh, auction houses and uh, the internet are, you know, the belief is that the, the number of people coming into art galleries these days is much held down compared to earlier days because of these other attractions and, re, and ways to do uh, art business. Mm -hmm. Now, you're still working with young artists, and I think of Tessa Dean and Julie Meritu as among, among the young artists you're working with. Is that still what keeps you going, working with artists, younger artists? Well, the reverse of that is the important to us artists who are no longer living are uh, Roy Lichtenstein, Bob Rauschenberg, Ellsworth, Stephen Korn. I think we've, we've worked with about 75 artists now, and over 30 of them have died. Mm -hmm. And so you got to do something. <laughs> and so... We, we're always looking, you know, we're, uh, you know what, what, how do we choose artists? You, you go to galleries, you go to museums, you, you ask you, your friends, you ask, uh, ask artists. I, I regularly ask the artists who, who we work with, who do you think we should consider, something like that. There's always going to be a need for looking for another artist. And, you know, like one example I think of quickly, we picked up Elizabeth Murray at the airport one day. This was probably 15 years ago. She said, oh, I've got an artist for you. you know, who is it? Julie Meritu. I'd never heard of her. And so I went home, and in the, um, amazingly, in the L.A. Times, there was a box ad or a display ad, or whatever you call it. It said Julie Meritu was opening that night at the Red Cat. <laughs> and so I, Joni and I called Elizabeth and said, uh, let's go see. Julie's opening at the exhibition there. So we went that night. We, we introduced ourselves and started a, friendship, which 
you know, led into a great relationship with mm-hmm. between her and us. So, but uh, yeah, uh, we, look, we've we've been busy since the day we started. And, and one of the worst things that you can do as a publisher is have an artist come in and do uh, proofing, proofing sessions when the artist comes in and does their part, uh, the creating of the art itself. And they usually last anywhere from one to four weeks. I think Roy Lichtenstein was a six-week proof, proofing artist, but otherwise uh, it was less than that. Does it happen then, if I understand the process, that an artist might come and initiate the printmaking process, then go back to New York or go back to where they are, and then come back and proof later? Every every time Jasper Johns came to Gemini, that's what he did. Uh-huh. Every time uh, Bob Rauschenberg came, he finished. Uh-huh. He, he never came back to, to start something. But there's a lot of both of those ways as far as proofing sessions. Uh-huh. When in publishing, one of the most undesirable things that can happen is the artist comes in, does their proofing, leaves, and then we can't get to the actual auditioning until a long period of time. It frustrates the artist and it makes them angry because they felt like they did their share and now you should be doing your share of actually producing this work so they can sign it and it's out in the world. You must have tremendous number of stories about artists. You've already said some. What are some of your favorite stories about them, working with them? Well, in, in Los Angeles, stories will evolve around movie stars. <laughs> and so we became fairly friendly with Dustin Hoffman. Dustin was, was a, I'd say, a fairly serious collector. And so one time he, I, I don't know whether he told us that he wanted to meet Bob Rauschenberg or Bob told us he wanted to meet Dustin. And so we made a date for them that they that they would meet each other. They'd come to Gemini at lunchtime. And so Johnny was up in front and Dustin came in and he sat down with her and he said, you know, how do I how, how do I look? Am I okay? Am I is this no? and I was in the shop with Bob and Bob said, how, how am I? How am I doing? <laughs> it's my time. Oh Bob made a paper bow tie <laughs> to work. And so so anyway, we introduced them, you know, and they, they went off halfway on their own lunch. But we both laughed. You know, we each told each other what the other one had been doing. So that, that was one. Um, let's see, uh, Norman Lear would have a, like a preview showing a movie at his house every Sunday night. So he invited us to come over and to bring Bob Rauschenberg with us. Bob was at Gemini at that time. So we did, and Gregory Peck was there. And so Gregory Peck and, and Bob found each other at the party, and they spent the evening talking about creativity. And so, <laughs> and so, uh, so I guess Bob tells Gregory Peck, well, why don't you come in and you know keep me company or, or we can talk. So the next morning the phone rings and, and his voice says, Sid. I don't know if you remember me, but this is Gregory Peck. <laughs> so I said, yeah, Gregory, I remember you. <laughs> so he said, well, Bob told me I could come in and, and, and be with him. And he said, yeah, come on in. So it was August, and uh, we have a big patio, and we, we had set a, a, like a scrim across the top so the artists could work outside. And uh, Gregory showed up about noontime. And Bob was working on chairs. He was making brass chairs 
and they were fabricated, and then Bob was taking dyes or paints, and uh, he was painting the material. And so for six hours, you know, Bob would walk, and Gregory would follow him <laughs> <laughs> across, and they, they, were, they were having a great time, and, you know, and the Jack Daniels was flowing. And, and for me, it was sort of a miracle <laughs> to watch this, these two characters, <laughs> the way they were interacting. But they kept talking about creativity all the time. They were seriously yeah, yeah, yeah. involved in the subject. Yeah. I remember one time, David Hockney wanted to meet Billy Wilder, and Billy Wilder wanted to meet David. And so I arranged a lunch, and the three of us went to Spago. And they were so excited about meeting each other that it was like, you know, sometimes on a tennis match where you watch where the ball goes this way, it goes to the right and to the left. And so they started talking to each other, and you had the feeling nobody was listening because they both kept talking all the time, you know. I was just sitting here, and they were to the left and right of me. And uh, this went on for, I don't know, one or two hours. Or they, it was just amazing <laughs> just watching the activity. Or, did it result in anything? Oh, yeah, they became good friends. Yeah. yeah. yeah well, David did a series called Friends, and he invited 22 guys, I think, 22 guys to uh, sit for him. They were in serious sitting, like two or three days. And it was fairly recently. 1976. Oh, that early, because yeah. he did it again recently. And I, you were subject to one of those prints. Yeah. Or one of those paintings that he made. Yeah. <laughs> well, the way that happens, a lot different than the way it happened. You know, David, in the last many years, is totally involved in digital as far as printmaking. Yeah. And so Joni and I went up to visit him. He asked me to sit in a chair, and he took my picture. And then same day, I think he asked Joni to sit in a chair. And the next thing we saw, he sent us a picture with about 20 people. <laughs> they were all sitting in chairs. <laughs> he made a print that was, I think, 36 feet long. You know, machine printed. It, it was huge. Yeah. Now, you're a photographer, and you've been taking photographs of life and work at Gemini since it opened, I think. Tell us about that and about your interest in photography. Well, look, as, as a teenager... Uh, maybe even before a teenager, I got interested in photography only in the sense of a little boy who read magazines, or I used to read photography magazines. And, and with a neighbor friend of mine, we decided we wanted to set up a dark room. We, we bought a book on what, what to do as far as processing film, black and white film. And uh, we, we used the bathroom in my parents' house we we made pictures. Then uh, in World War II, I was a GI and, and I was stationed in Europe for 23 months. I took a lot of it was fun pictures, so to speak. And so when the war ended, I was stationed in, in Paris, and uh, they had these, they were like, you'd call them black markets, I guess. The European people had a lot of cameras, and, and we had chocolates and cigarettes and stuff, so you could trade, a good deal for both sides. So I did trade for a better camera. So when Jim and I started, again, Ken Tyler ran the shop, and I ran the administration and sales, I really didn't have the confidence in myself as a photographer to try to take pictures of the artist, but, but Tyler 
hired, well, Malcolm Wilbliner, who uh, his, his photos are, are in part of the Getty, mm-hmm. Getty collection. Well, for the first, probably the first five years, Malcolm was a Gemini photographer. Oh, right. Documenting the the artists at work? Yeah, from 66 to probably 71. But then Tyler left Gemini in 70, well, beginning of 73, but by 72 he was pretty much out of there. I still was timid about doing it. I didn't think I was that good. So when I started doing it, I was photographing the printers, (laughs) and and I sort of got my confidence. And then uh, Bob Rauschenberg was the first artist that I photographed in the shop. And he was very kind and very encouraging, saying, you know, your pictures are really good when I look at them. You, you capture something that I really appreciate. That gave me a certain amount of confidence. And so then I started. But I, when you look back at our, my early pictures, they, they're, they're not great. <laughs> the thing is, I had, and I had this audience. I, I, you know, I feel like my photography collection there's certainly one strong element is the friendship with the artists. Yeah. Because Bob Rosenberg was my first pal, you might say, amongst the artists, but then, you know, pretty quickly became strong friendships with a lot of the artists. And as I did, I, I got more confidence. And, you know, I felt it's one thing to have a hired gun who comes in and, and photographs, and I think it keeps the subjects a little bit maybe uh, ill at ease by, by this outsider. But in, in my case, I had the friendship, and I always asked them, and they always said, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And every time I took a picture of an artist, I would send them a print. And I had a few times where the artist said to me, you know, I didn't even realize you were taking my picture. <laughs> gave me a whole other message that, you know, again, I was buying like the cameras because on the, the rangefinder cameras, the shutter is so quiet, you probably don't hear the, mm-hmm. whereas the single lens reflex, oh, you hear that clumping, you know. Yeah, yeah. I sort of tiptoed around. You know, then later on, I, I started really understanding more about photography, and my pictures probably the last 20 or 25 years got much better. But. Well, I've got a book of your photographs here, and I've identified three of the photographs that I like very much, and I wanted you to talk about them. This one is showing Richard Serra. There's this two-page spread, and Richard is making <laughs> prints of rounds, yeah. uh, pouring this pigmented material onto yeah, the, yeah. the well, paper or onto some, some, something. <laughs> Tell us about this and, and describe it for us. Yeah. Well, Richard's an amazing collaborator. In that he, he gets into it, and he gets all the printers really into it with him. We, we have a etching studio, we have a lithography studio, we have a screen printing studio, and we have a Richard Serra studio. <laughs> Richard is so active in printmaking. You know, he, he's done about 325 editions with us now. Wow. And everything's black, and a, a lot of the subject interesting to him is texture. Because he makes his own drawings, but he wants his prints to be different than his drawings. And so here, those items on the floor are, are aluminum plates. Well, they could be copper plates. I think maybe they're copper plates. And so he, Richard puts paint stick on the plate, and then it— then Which is it, a waxy, tacky substance. It, it, it's a crayon. It's soft and very tacky, and, and, and it's very moldable. It, it's very easily shaped. And so he— I had a big collection of jazz records, and he likes rock and roll. 
sometimes he brought his own records in. And so he plays the music real loud and he starts dancing with, on top of the plates. He's creating texture from into the bottom of his shoes. And so you're watching this phenomenal of an artist <laughs> creating texture by dancing to rock and roll. And there are two prints attached to the wall behind it. Have they proofed those prints? So is this what these prints are going to look like? Yeah, that's in the artist studio. Anything on the wall is something he's working on right now. Mm -hmm. At that time, I mean. Yeah. What about this photograph? Photograph of Jasper attending to a cross-hatched print. And he's, it's his striped mm -hmm. shirt and the combination yeah. between the striped shirt and mm -hmm. the cross-hatched on the printing. That yeah, well, that was the attraction. Just to look at the the two different designs clashing with each other, so to speak, his cross-hatching and his very striped shirt. So he was molding the image itself, embossing in it. And so he's pounding on an embossing plate to get the shape he wants. But you were interested in the, the play looked, of the lines. Yeah, the looking at, you know, it's very, very normal, say Jasper, or an artist is in the studio working. I will follow them around. I usually... Before digital came in, I had a, three cameras. One was black and white film, one was color film, and one was uh, slides. And so I would follow the artist around as soon as I saw something that looked interesting, I'd start photographing it. And that happened to be a very visually interesting moment. What about this photograph? You know. Ellsworth <laughs> Kelly, and you? Well, everybody wants to get into the act. And so I figured out by the use of the mirrors that I could get Ellsworth and me both in the picture. So that's photographed into a mirror that reflects off of that. So so we have Ellsworth Kelly on the left side of this two-page spread, yeah. looking into the spread and then turning his head to the right. Yeah. And you're, you've captured that on by the other spread by the reflection in the mirror. So we're seeing his right side of his face on yeah. one side, left side of his face on the other. And there's a round mirror on the table and you and your camera are dead center in the round mirror. Yeah. <laughs> the mirror was sort of a standard item in the, in the shop because artists like to use mirrors a lot of times. And either Since the print the prints in the reverse. reverse. Yeah. Uh, well, that was terrific. You know, and we, you've compiled this great archive of artist photographs, photographs of artists, and, and we are very happy to have that now in the collection of the Getty Research Institute. And thanks to Jack Shear, yeah. we made it possible. And Jack Shear, of course, is the husband of the late... Ellsworth Kelly. Yeah. Incidentally, just as an add-on, Jack Shear was a partner owner of a photo lab called Photo Impact. Again, in the days of film, I would have my all my uh, black and white film done at Photo Impact. And so one day I just said to Ellsworth, give me company. I want to go and drop off this film. And he said, yeah. So we drove down there, and Jack Shear was behind the counter. And if you ever see these magical moments where two people look at each other and the sparks start to fly. And the sparks started to fly, and I'd say within, within a few months, I lost my, my lab man <laughs> who moved back to Upper State New York and lived with, with Ellsworth for many, many years. And then I think it was Ellsworth's birthday of probably 2010 or something like that, that the, the morning... Elsra said to Jack, we're going to get married today. <laughs> and they got married. They stayed married for five years until, until Elsra died. So. Yeah. But I felt that I helped create a, a very 
important romance. Well, what's led to the archive of your photographs coming to the Getty, and we're very pleased and grateful to you for that, and also grateful, of course, to Jack to make it possible. So, Sydney, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman, with audio production by Gideon Brower, and mixing by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts, or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.